Amen. Amen to that, right? Well, I wish Owen were here with us this morning, but as you saw in the video, he's headed off to school. But uh, man, if there is a way I could just tell all of you the, the fullness of that story, I would. Um, I know many of you that maybe aren't even here, but some of you at home have played a huge role in Owen's life. And, and that young man's been through quite a journey and an amazing thing to, to see and to celebrate. And that's such a powerful way for us to begin uh, our time in the Word this morning. And the, one of the reasons why I love the symbolism and the picture of baptism is because it invites us into the Great Commission, right? And, it, and it's a rediscovery of those final words that Jesus gives and, and leaves with his followers, right? His believers. These, these are the final instructions. And, and what, does he, what does he tell them? Or what are the, what's the, that final charge? He says, listen, as you go, Right, as you go through life, literally into the world, into the nations, into all peoples that you're going to encounter, people that are different than you, they're going to speak differently than you, look differently than you, wherever you go, make disciples. And that charge is not, you know, some of you will be gifted with this, some of you can do it if you have time. No, this is what all, this is the charge for the church, go and make disciples. And so what does that look like? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. Right? As you go into the world, what are you going to encounter? You're going to encounter lostness. Right? You're going to encounter darkness. You're going to encounter needs. And so you go and you bring hope, you bring truth, and what you're going to see as a fruit and a result of those efforts is baptism. Right? As you go and you make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right, that's the first mark of discipleship, that, that heart transformation from lostness into light. But it doesn't stop there, right? Baptism is just one marker of symbolism of lordship of Jesus Christ because then that begins and initiates or, or identifies this desire to follow Christ in everything. That Then discipleship is teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Right? That, that's the charge of the church. That's what we've been asked to do. And so when we see a symbol and a powerful testimony like that, it's inviting us back into the Great Commission. And so it, I want to share with you a question that I've been considering for several months now, even, even pre-COVID. And many of you maybe even heard me ask this question because I was asking it in a lot of circles, staff, deacons, uh, small groups, lunches, coffees, wherever I was. The question that I had was that if we as a church family were fully living out the Great Commission, how many baptisms should we be seeing? In a given year? That was a question that I would ask. And it was always interesting to see the, the range of responses. Some people would say, you know, in the dozens, some people would say in the hundreds, and then everything in between. Uh, and a lot of people, a couple of people would even say to me, well, I don't even know if you should really focus on baptism, if that's even the right thing to be looking for. And I was like, in my mind, I was thinking, well, look, I didn't come up with it. Like, it's just in the book. You know, I'm just kind of following along here. It's a reasonable question. And, and so as I started wrestling with that, I actually kind of answered it with another question that I'm going to put in front of you today. How many baptisms should you be seeing in your life? Right? If you're going into the world, going into the places that God has led you, right, all those arenas, and you know this is the responsibility of the church, this is the mark of what it means to be a disciple, is to make disciple, right, that, that we should have opportunities to be pouring into the lostness around us, carrying this truth, carrying this righteousness, this gospel of peace, and seeing baptisms, right? Are we seeing those things in our life, right? And we're going to tease, I'm teasing this now because we're going to come back to it here in a little bit 
in the message. But that's the question. And, and the, the reason it's such a meaningful question and part of the reason a testimony like that is so powerful is because it brings us not just into this incredible testimony and experience, but because it brings us back to one of the most fundamental promises of the scripture that Jesus gives us at the Great Commission, I am with you always. Or when we see a video like that, at the very least, every one of us in here today should be reminded that God is with you. Despite all the craziness of the world around us and us constantly looking for answers and peace, listen, he is with you. And when you think about putting on the armor of God, that's our battle cry. That video, that testimony, that's an example of victory. And that's what we want to be encouraged with today. That promise that he's with us as we go into the battle. So as we continue this series through the armor of God, let's pray that God would stir our hearts and prepare us to fight accordingly. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we love you. We are grateful for this opportunity to pursue you and to seek you once more. God, enrich us and embolden us. Father, let your word be living and active, that it would stir us on. God, we pray for many more stories like the one we just heard today from Owen. God, stories of your church going out and pouring into the hearts of people that you bring into our paths that we can see your lordship pronounced. God, that we can be comforted and reminded of the beauty of that promise that you are with us. Remind us of that this morning as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. As I've said before, if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We will get one to you. That's for those of you that are with us, those of you that are at home. You can reach us out, reach out to us, and we'd be happy to get you a Bible. We're working through this Armor of God series and we started it several weeks ago, and let me just kind of remind you that this is the climactic moment of this letter in the book of Ephesians, right? We, we talked about how this was the rallying cry to, to the church. This is that equivalent of every inspiring speech of every war movie you've ever seen when the commander stands in front of his troops and tries to embolden his troop towards confidence and aggression and all those different things. This, everything we've read in Ephesians— Right? Paul is reminding us of all that's been done for us in Christ Jesus, that he's blessed us richly in the heavenly realms, that we've been brought into one body to practice unity, maturity, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, is because we are going to engage in this inevitable conflict with evil. Right? So put on the armor of God. Right? That's, that's what all of this is leading to. So we're going to read through it again. And here's what I want to do each week. We're only looking at it one verse at a time, but I'm going to read it to you in its context because I want us to hear the whole message and retain the fullness of what Paul is saying. But we're going to focus in today in chapter 6, verse 15. Picking up, though, in verse 10 as we read the entire passage. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Here's our verse for the morning. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. 
With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Again, verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. All right, here's how we're tackling this this morning. We're going to kind of follow a similar formula from last week. We're going to first look into the imagery of the armor that's presented to us here. Uh, We're going to once again see how that correlates to this theme of readiness and preparation that's interwoven throughout this passage. And then we're going to really try to focus our time for the last part of the message on the gospel of peace and what that really looks like and how we understand the gospel through the lens of peace. And so when you read through verse 15, what's a little bit different with this translation of the NIV is that it's not like there's a piece of armor that just leaps off the page at you, right? You don't have one specifically referenced with, like you had with belt and breastplate. All we have is a reference to feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And so we know it has to do with feet. And so logical conclusion is shoes, right? And, and we can all relate to the importance of shoes. We, we have all different sorts of opinions for shoes. You got people that collect them. You got athletes that got closets full of Jordans. You got famous people that have closets full of all sorts of fancy shoes, comfortable shoes, because we can create shoes for fashion statements and style purposes. I mean, we, we all are familiar with the wide array of shoes because we all need them, right? Raise your hand if you're wearing shoes today. All right, good. I saw every hand, thankfully, I think. And the reason is because we know that they're necessary. You got to have them, right? It's not just that it's a fashion statement. It's not just that you use them for convenience, but you have to have them. Now, I will say that in my experience as a parent, I've discovered that at least with my children in my, my household, this understanding that shoes are a necessity is not an innate understanding that you're born with. You actually have to learn this somewhere along the way. And it has been a battle and a struggle as I've tried to parent my children. I remember some of these phases where it's been frustrating, where like when they were younger, I don't do this as much currently, but they would get in the car and immediately take their shoes off. I mean, and I don't mean like we're on a road trip and we're gonna be traveling for a couple of hours. I mean, like the door would shut And before I could get in the driver's seat, I would turn around and their shoes would be off. And I'd be like, we're going to the store. It's two minutes away. You don't need to take off your shoes. And that was so frustrating to me because I had just spent 15 to 20 minutes in the house getting them to find their shoes and figure out how to put them on. And so it was just this frustration, constant frustration. And now when we even to this day go outside and play, they still don't wear shoes. Right? They'll go outside and play in the yard, and I'm constantly, you put your shoes on? No, nah, I don't need them. And, and so like, I'll play football with James in the front yard. We have two huge pecan trees, and our yard will be filled with broken pecans. And I'm like, do you think you might want shoes? He's like, no, nah, I'm good. I can run faster without them. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, let's see that. And then inevitably, right, he's going to step on a pecan. It's going to hurt, but still hasn't learned his lesson, still prefers to be out there with shoes. My, my daughter is the same way. Right? She goes out to play, does not put shoes on. And, and this came back to, to uh, hurt her not too long ago, about a month or two ago. We were outside playing, and our neighbor had been doing some work in his backyard. And he was putting down this, this new cement patio. And uh, the cement hadn't been laid yet, or the patio hadn't been laid yet. It was just kind of all dirt and whatnot. And so he heard us out there playing, and he came up, struck up a conversation. He said, hey, you want to come check it out. You want to see what I've got going on back there? I was like, yeah, let's do it. And, and Annabelle kind of overheard, and she goes, Dad, can I come? Can I come? And I said, sure, come on, come on back with us. And so we made our way back to his backyard, and, and it was laid down. It was prepared, and so it had the rhubarb down, right? And those metal rods that were laying down crisscross, and the way they fastened those together were with these little metal twisty ties, okay? You know, so you know, like the twisty tie on the end of like a bag of bread. Well, imagine that, but made of metal. 
and it was twisted together, and a lot of them were pointed up, okay? So she don't have shoes on, and we're walking back through there, and all of a sudden I hear Annabelle go, oh, ow, 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 and I look down, and I can see that she had stepped on one of those little metal twisty ties. It went straight into her heel, right, just on this side. And so I looked at it, and it was bleeding, so I picked her up, and as I picked her up, now the blood really starts going, and the shock of the pain has now morphed into screams. Oh my gosh, it hurts, it hurts. And so I'm, I'm carrying my bleeding daughter. I look at my neighbor, I'm like, I'm gonna have to come back and check this out a little bit later. Go into the house, she's in pain. And at that point, I call the nurse, right? Which thankfully is my wife because I don't do what comes next, okay? I'm not, Jennifer gets in nurse mode. She's like, get the alcohol, you know, and he's just pouring it on there. And the pain is even that much more excruciating, but we finally get it bandaged and, and healed up for her. And I waited probably five to 10 minutes before the I told you so, right? I didn't wait a week. I didn't wait a day. You know, I was just like, this is why we wear shoes, okay? And hopefully that lesson starts to get into my kid's mind. But here's the deal. After that injury, what happened? She laid on the couch all day, couldn't move. That's what happens when you injure your foot. It immobilizes you. I had a foot injury this weekend. Man, I could barely walk. Right? So what happens is, is we think we don't need them, and then an injury takes place, and we're immobilized. This is the point of what Paul is trying to make. Right? When he starts to reference the foot, any biblical reference to the foot, more often than not, is used to create an image of movement. It's a call to action. Now, the way that we see that further substantiated with this text is the word fitted. Right? So feet Fitted, that literally means to put on sandal. Fitted is the word for the armor that doesn't really resonate with us in the English, but in the original language, it would say put on the sandal. And because we know this is the armor of the Roman soldier, you can go back and see what kind of uh, footwear that the Roman soldier utilized. And it were these these boots, these these high-strung sandals, and on the bottom of them, they had like nails, right? And so it's really interesting that that allowed them to not just plant firmly, but, but navigate very difficult terrain. In fact, many historians have said that one of the reasons so many generals like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were so successful was because they could move swiftly over difficult terrain. It was because of their shoes, <laughs> right? So what we're seeing here with this call towards this armor is this is about movement, right? What, this is a call to be on the offensive, right? You're going into enemy territory because you have your shoes on. You are having your feet fitted with readiness. So, so you merge this imagery of the armory with that word readiness and this constant theme of preparation that we've seen throughout this text. And we see that what he's trying to do is get them in the right mindset. You are on the attack, right? That's what he wants out of this army. He doesn't want them just sitting back planting themselves, waiting to withstand the forces of evil that are coming against them. He wants them to invade enemy territory, navigate this difficult terrain, move swiftly because your feet are armed and ready with the gospel of peace. And so one of the questions that I have for us this morning is do you have that mindset, right? Is your mindset with your faith to be one that is ready to be on the offensive, right? To be on the attack. And what does that look like? Right? The, the mindset of the Christian army, the, the fellowship of the saints, is one that is going to be courageous, one that's going to be bold, one that's going to take risk. And my fear is that many of us are lacking in that mindset. Because the trick that we often fall into is that we get convinced 
that there isn't a war to begin with. And so what do we opt for? Comfort. Right? What's one of the first things you do to get comfortable? Take off your shoes. Right? And that's what we've done in our faith. We create a life of comfort. Comfort with our friendships, comfort with our schools, with our careers, comfort in our churches. Right? And it's fun. But what we're doing is we're convincing ourselves there isn't a war going on. And then the next thing you know, we injure our foot and we're immobilized. The church can barely move forward. Paul is trying to guard against that, saying, no, you've got to have the right mindset. Don't just withstand it, right? Be courageous, be bold, move forward. One of the reasons I think we gravitate towards this comfortable life is because when we think about how we're gonna build our life, we drive it by these questions of what ifs, right? What if my life looks like this? And so when we start thinking about taking risks, or living on the edge, or following God's call, a lot of times we answer those what-if questions with fear rather than faith, right? And so we start thinking, well, what, what if this is bad for my children? What if this is bad for my marriage? What if this is bad for my job? What if this is bad for my finances? And so because we know that there's risk involved, we say, well, let me just keep it safe. Let me just keep it comfortable within here. When in reality, the army that's fitted with the feet of the gospel of peace is not thinking out of fear, but out of faith. What if I'm victorious? What what if we push back the darkness? What if we see God do incredible, amazing things? That's what the mindset looks like. And so so how do we live that out practically? Well, we sung about it in some ways, right? The harvest is plenty. And so we mobilize ourselves, right? There, There are several ways that we begin to do this. First of all, we navigate the difficult terrain in our own lives. Right, you think about the difficulty of life and, and how it's going to come at you. Right? When you cling to the gospel, then it doesn't matter if it's, if it's the difficulty of hardship, of, of disease, of grief, of loneliness. Those difficult moments when all of a sudden we feel forgotten, we cling to the gospel that says, no, you're chosen. Right? Those difficult moments in life where we feel that people hate us or we might hate them, we cling to the gospel that says, no, you choose love. Right, those moments where we feel lost and we feel like we're wandering and we feel like there is no purpose, we remember the gospel and we say, no, there is meaning and there is significance to what you've been called to do. We navigate the difficult terrain of life, whatever it looks like, because we are armed with the gospel. The answer is always Jesus, and it keeps us moving. And as it keeps us moving, it allows us to be light in the darkness. It allows us to be workers in that harvest. Right, so this is what we do. As the church, we create these avenues to engage with people, right? to have the opportunity to truly live out in that meaningful way. And when we go, we share the gospel. Right? Part of having your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel is believing it in your own life and sharing it with others, which is why I asked those questions at the beginning. Should we be seeing these baptisms in the people that we're investing in? Right, here's the way I started asking that question, right, or answering that question. I answered it with another question. Is it unreasonable, ask yourself this, is it unreasonable for you and your household, whatever your household looks like, if you're you're by yourself, if you're in a dorm with a roommate, if you're married, without children, with children, whatever your household looks like, is it unreasonable for you to think that wherever God has sent you as you're going and you encounter the lostness in your life, because I assure you it's there, and you encounter lostness, 
Is it unreasonable that if you thought, man, for, for a year, I'm, I'm going to pour into this person? I'm going to, to be on the attack in terms of the gospel, right? I'm going to love them fiercely. I'm going to speak truth gently. I'm going to meet needs, and I'm going to point to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If I do that faithfully, is it unreasonable to think that within a year that person could choose to, to believe in Christ and decide to be baptized and be set on a journey where they continue to learn what it means to obey him in all things? I don't think it's unreasonable at all. And that's exactly how we move, right? That, that's what the army of God begins to work towards, to push back the forces of darkness because we can navigate the difficult terrain in our own lives and we can share the gospel with those who are trying to do the same, right? And that's, that's the message we carry, right? If that's what it looks like fundamentally, well, let's dive into it a little bit more deeply by looking at this description that the message we carry when we move in such a way is the gospel of peace, and so think about that. Uh, hopefully at some point in your life or in your uh, journey through Christ, you've heard that the gospel in its simplest definition means good news. Right? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and that's exactly what it is, good news. That's why we celebrate. That's why we praise. But, but in particular, in this verse, it's described as the good, the gospel of peace. Right? And so I, what I want us to do this morning is to look at this good news through the lens of peace to better understand how it is we we move on the offensive against the forces of darkness, right? And so, so when you begin to consider the term peace, there's a lot of ways to define it. A lot of times it means tranquility, harmony. It's the opposite of war. It's the opposite of disturbance. It's the opposite of hostility. One of the definitions that I came across that I really liked in my studies this past week is that it means freedom from worry. How beautiful is that? How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but how many of us struggle with worry? Right, all the anxieties, all the concerns, the good news is you've been set free from worry. That's what Jesus does for all of us. Right? So, so how does he do that? Well, part of that, I think, is answered by a further exploration into this term of peace. So when you start to look at it biblically, it's, it's much richer than just tranquility. Right? It's, it's much more meaningful than just being by that picturesque landscape by a smooth stream and meditating and having just this steadiness in life. It's so much more than that. In the Old Testament, the word it was shalom. And when you look at the majority of the uses of the word shalom, very rarely, if ever, did it have to do with inner peace. It has almost always something to do with relationship. Right? Peace with the neighbor, peace with other nations. And so part of what you see with this concept of peace are the roots and the understanding of love your neighbor. It's about peace with one another, right? And yet as you move into the New Testament, that concept of shalom is still there, right? And you still see that peace and that accord that exists between mankind. But now it takes us deeper into a better understanding of how do we not just achieve peace with the neighbor, but peace with God. Right? How does this, this right relationship, righteousness, right? a right relationship with others and a right relationship with God take place? That's what gives us peace. And so Paul, when he's beginning to speak of the shoes fitted or the feet fitted with the gospel readiness of peace, you don't even have to have you go all the way back to the Old Testament and Shalom and all these other New Testament writings. He's already given us a pretty clear picture in Ephesians itself. Right? And it's been several weeks, if not months, since we've looked at this. And so let me just remind you of what he's already said about peace. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 14. And here's the context of this chapter. He's talking about the relationship between Jew and Gentile, right? The hostility that existed. There was this significant gap that existed between these two people, right? Tremendous aggression, hostility, division, conflict that existed. But all of that has been undone through the gospel. And so Paul elaborates on it in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, for he, he being Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have both access to the Father by one spirit. That paragraph speaks to this amazing reconciliation, peace with one another and peace with God, right? That's what this gospel achieves. The dividing wall of hostility, the animosity that exists between one another is made possible because by the cross, we are no longer against one another, but we're one family. So it's not somebody of another race, another religion, another whatever. Through Christ, we become brother and sister, because we both call him Father. One new humanity is created. That's the gospel of peace. And so how do we pursue that in today's context? What does that look like for you and me? Well, think about it from this standpoint. The war that we are in is going to be a war that tries to do everything opposite from what we've just read, right? So the trick of the devil is to create conflict with the neighbor conflict with God, animosity, division, right? So when we begin to encounter all the seeds that create that, slander, gossip, racism, malice, violence, all those things, can you think of any examples of that in today's culture? Yeah. And if you can't, come find me. I'll tell you a bajillion, right? We're surrounded by that sort of aggression, because that's exactly what the devil wants, conflict, hostility, dividing walls. So when we combat this war, our answer is to not fall victim to that trap. We seek that peace with the neighbor, and we carry that message that that peace is possible because we've all been given peace with God, right? So here's what it looks like practically. We go out into the world, whatever that looks like. Through the church, we have these avenues. Right? So like in our church, through the pandemic, we've been taking food to families, right? more than hundreds of homes where we've had a chance to, to help those. We, we've worked with the Presbyterian Night Shelter. We've got people working with youth. We're, we're working with students. Right? Pick your avenue. We create these avenues that hopefully allow us to meet the needs of people. Right? We fight against injustices. Right? As we sung about, we want to be a mother to the orphan, to the beggar, a hand, right? to, to the widow, a helper. Right? We, we do all these different things to try to create that sort of love and that sort of relationship, but that's not all we do. It's not enough to just leave groceries on a doorstep. We go with a message, right? We go with the truth. We go with the hope of righteousness. And so the question is, how do we communicate that well in a world that is so consistently hostile with one another? Well, we talked about that a lot last week, but I wanna, I wanna package it and elaborate on it a little bit further by 
bringing in another word of instruction that Paul gives Timothy that I think is so applicable for us today. Right, when we create these avenues, the way that we build peace with the people around us through the spirit of the gospel, a great reminder of this comes from 2 Timothy chapter two. I'm gonna break this down little by little just as a quick guide for us today. Here's what he says to Timothy chapter two, verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth. There's step number one. Right, those evil impulses, those evil desires, run away from it. They have nothing to do with it. So if there's that shred of evil in your life, that wayward impulse, man, you gotta resist it. Here's what you pursue, right? You pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Well, what does that pursuit of peace look like? You pursue peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You do it in community. You do it with others. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I love that the Bible uses the word stupid. It's like, seriously, y'all, that's just dumb, right? Have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Why? Because you know they produce quarrels. And this is where he continues. God's people, the Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome. That does not create peace, right? So we resist. That's exactly what the devil wants, and, and we look and live in a world that is constantly fighting with one another. But if we're gonna pursue peace, when we don't engage in that sort of activity because we're not to be quarrelsome. Rather, we're to be kind to everyone. There's a good word, right? We seek kindness in every relationship. The, the word for kindness is this idea of consideration, right? Considering other people's needs above your own. That's a good question for all of us to, to try to pursue a text like this. When you think about your day, how much of your day is driven by you meeting your needs and how much of your day is driven by you meeting the needs of others? Kindness is gonna be driven by meeting the needs of others, considerate of others even above your own needs. But here's what I really love about this. It's not just that you're kind, this is critical. You must be able to teach. Right, so it's not just that we're, we're meeting needs and then we're gone. You have to know how to teach. What that means is you have to know how to share the gospel. You have to know how to bring this truth into a conversation. So if you're sitting there and you're going, well, I don't even know how to do that. I don't know how to share the gospel. How do I? Good news, discipleship groups. That's, that's the whole heart behind them is that we can train and equip and encourage one another to this end so that when we go out into the world, we know what to say and we know how to say it and we can encourage one another and pray for one another to those ends. But the point is, we go with the mindset of being able to teach, but the manner in which we teach others is incredibly critical. Not resentful, right? We don't, we don't go forth with a message that is driven by holding a grudge, trying to prove our point, trying to say, I told you so. We don't go with resentment but rather our opponents, enemies, people that think and feel differently than us must be gently instructed. Man, if the church could figure that out. Gentle, we're not surrendering our values. We're not surrendering truth, but we convey it in love, in gentle instruction. Why? Because we know if we do that, then there is hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. That's just that reminder, our war is not against flesh and blood. And what a great way for us to say, this is how I pursue peace. If we live that out, we're removing hostility. We're destroying that wall, right? But the problem is, is that so often it becomes such a difficult struggle. Why? 
Because at the same time, the only way that we can really do this is if we truly understand and live out the power of being reconciled to God, right? That's the message. That's the hope that we're bringing to any situation in any relationship is that peace can be had with God himself. And that takes us to the heart of the human dilemma that every single one of us experiences, right? So, so let's revisit what the human dilemma is. The human dilemma that all of us grapple with is that our innate desire and impulse is to trust ourselves. That's it. Fundamentally, that's at the core. Right? Here's how it's presented us to us in the garden. The temptation that taps into that impulse is you will be like God. Now, none of us really walks around in life thinking that we're divine. Very few, right? And so how do we really fall victim to that? Well, the temptation was associated with this desire to know good and evil, right? Eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This was essentially this moment of humanity saying, you know what? I want to decide for myself. I want to experience for myself what is right and wrong rather than listen to God. Because when I do that, Right? Rather than having to hear him say, this is the way to live, this is what you can do, I'm able to determine that for myself, and I become like him. And so this is the human impulse of pride. So now we create these lives that are all through our lens of what we think is right and wrong, and we assemble in the various tribes and groups that affirm our biases and our beliefs accordingly. Right? So I get to decide what marriage should look like. I get to decide what greed looks like. I get to decide whether or not I can look at pornography or if I can smoke pot. I get to decide uh, what uh, kind of life I should have. I get to decide what is right and wrong and good and evil, what is just and unjust. And if you are with me, then we're gonna be friends. If you're against me, I'm gonna be adamantly opposed to you. And that's the mindset. Oh, I'll believe in God, but I'm gonna make sure I create him in such a way that he just affirms what I already believe. So I don't need authority. I can question authority. I'll just create some idea of some sort of divinity that's out there that just affirms this lifestyle that I've created for myself. And the more we do that, the more we build building blocks of hostility with others and a chasm between us and God. And so the problem is that mindset is empty of peace. There's none of it. We all know it. So we keep trying to fix it with one more answer, one more debate, one more conversation, one more system of government, whatever it is, and none of it works because at the end of the day, we all make terrible gods. And so what happens? We live with animosity with one another. We don't have peace in our own hearts and our own minds. And this is what makes it good news. So God sees that problem and sends us a prince of peace. In fact, that's probably what Paul is quoting here. He's probably referring to this beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 52. Here's how it reads in chapter 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, our God 
reigns. <laughs> the passage in Isaiah that was likely pointing to not just Jesus, but his church, a promise that those of us that follow in his way, we too have these beautiful feet that proclaim peace to those around us, peace with each other and peace with God. It's a reminder that this gospel is absolutely beautiful and wonderful and powerful. Right? You think about the beauty that's described here and you think about all that we see in the scriptures, right? That part of what makes this gospel so beautiful is because this was God's plan A. This was his original intent. It's not like he got into trouble and had to come up with an audible or another option. No, this was the very beginning. The word was with him in the beginning. The word was God. The word was with God. And in all things that were created, they were created for him. Colossians says he was the firstborn over all creation. So think about this. Every time you envision or encounter beauty in creation, right? Every majestic sunset or sunrise or, or the majesty of a mountains or the depths of the ocean or the miracle of a newborn life, all of that was created for him and by him. I assure you, this gospel is breathtakingly beautiful. And it's wonderful, right? It, it brings good tidings. It proclaims salvation. The beauty of this gospel is that God sees us in this dilemma, and he comes down to us, knowing there is no way we could get to him. As great as our sin was, his love for you and me was greater. And so he sends this prince of peace, we see the feet of a newborn babe that will grow and mature and become a man that marches from village to village and into crowds, and he heals the leper, he heals the blind, he preaches the announcement of the kingdom. And those that saw him calmed the, call the winds and the waves, and they saw his power. They were in awe of him. They were filled with wonder. I assure you this gospel is truly wonderful. And it is powerful because those same feet that healed and taught this message marched to the cross. He was on the move. He was on the offensive. He marched straight into the forces of darkness, straight into the face of evil to the point of offering his own death on the cross. And through that sacrifice, you and I received peace and the right to be called sons and daughters. And it was there in that death that his power came bursting forth because the grave could not hold him, right? In the words that have echoed from generation to generation, he is not here, he is risen, he is alive, have changed the hearts of men and women forever. Because we see that through that resurrection, there is no equal. His is the kingdom, it is the power, it is the glory forever and ever. Let me assure you, church, this gospel is beautiful, it is wonderful, it is powerful, and it has a name. And the name is Jesus. And he is calling you to move. So let's be ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Father, equip us. Father, to move wherever you lead. Father, I, pay, I pray that the peace that we have through Christ, God, would once again 
reign supremely in our hearts and in our minds. God, that we would have the opportunity to reconcile with people in our life that perhaps we're at odds with, God. I, I pray that for anyone that's here joining us in this room or online, if there's someone in their life where there is animosity, where there's division, where there's hostility, God, that they would confess it before you now. And God, that you would help them through a path of repentance and lead them towards reconciliation. God, if there's anyone in this room, in this moment, that has never truly understood what it means to have peace with you, speak to them now. Call them home. Let them acknowledge that they've been trying to go their own way, to do their own thing, to get their own version of what's right and wrong. Father, and through that spirit of brokenness and surrender, let us once again find the healing of what it means to be reconciled and be brought into peace with you. And for all of us that are here today, God, may we rise up as your church. Let us rise up as your army, ready to move, ready to be called to action, ready to push back the forces of darkness, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of the air, God. Let's be your church that is ready to claim the hearts and souls of men and women and children all over this world because we know that this gospel is beautiful, it is wonderful, it is powerful. And we go under the name of our King, our Lord, our Savior. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen and amen.